Hello, March of History audience. I'm starting this episode a little bit differently today, before the music, because I have a special announcement to make. We have recently launched the March of History's Patreon page. Now, if you don't know what Patreon is, it's a monthly subscription service that allows you to voluntarily pay a monthly subscription to support the March of History. You can go there right now to check it out. It's at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the March of History. That's patreon.com slash the March of History. And it works the exact same way as your Amazon Prime subscription or your Netflix subscription or your newspaper subscription. The only difference is the money goes into my pocket rather than Jeff Bezos or some other billionaire's pocket. <laughs> so if you've enjoyed the past 40-some or, or 39, and this is episode 40 episodes I've delivered, I'm sure you've noticed that none of them had paywalls, none of them had advertisements, and all of them were completely free to you, the audience. And this is your chance to support us financially. And when you go onto our Patreon, you'll see that there's different tiers depending on how much you decide to donate. And the tiers are all named after Roman military positions or Roman military people in our story, like Crassus or Caesar, with a fun kind of joking description of what you are in Caesar's army now that you've donated this much. It's all history-oriented. It's all very lighthearted. So... Even if you, at this point in time, don't have the money to donate, I encourage you to go check it out. And what's more is, yes, there is a minimum tier to get one of those labels, but there's no such thing as a donation too small. Even if you can only afford 50 cents or a dollar a month, I would still happily and gratefully accept that because every dollar counts. As I've said from the beginning, I have always wanted the March of History to be a full-time career and full-time business for me. I want to bring history content to you, my audience, full-time. And the only way that's going to happen is if the March of History pays the bills, which right now, not only does it not pay the bills, I actually have spent thousands of my own dollars outside of countless hours of my hard work on the March of History. All of which has been my pleasure, and I've really, truly enjoyed researching all this history for you and sharing it with you every week or every other week, and I love doing it, and and nobody's forced me to. This has all been of my own volition, but it can't continue long-term if we don't find a way to make the March of History pay the bills. So that's what Patreon is, and uh, make sure you go ahead and check it out, and like I said, any donation is welcome. Nothing is too small. Although the more you donate, the more we can do with the March of History. So without further ado, I will bring you the show now, and I will talk to you after the music. Welcome to the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness, back with episode 40 of the March of History. And it's always exciting for me. Anytime we hit one of the episode numbers, that's an increment of 10, 20, 30, 40, because it's just amazing to me that we now have 40 episodes out on the life of Julius Caesar, and this podcast continues to grow. And I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. So I just want to take a little moment to celebrate episode 40 of the March of History, and it's going to be a good one. 
Now, I'm recording this episode from my new apartment in Valencia, Spain. I told you in the last episode I was at my temporary apartment. Now I'm at my apartment for the next year, at least the next year in Valencia. And it is in the historic center of Valencia, the true historic center. So where my apartment is is actually the center of the city back when it was founded as a Roman colony. And Valencia is actually one of the oldest cities in all of Spain. It was founded as a Roman colony back in the year 138 BCE by the consul Decimus or Decimus, depending on your pronunciation, Junius Brutus Calaicus. And he founded it as a colony for veterans that had fought on the Iberian Peninsula against, as the Romans would have seen it, barbarian tribes. So there are Roman baths in the area, and I'm guessing some other Roman ruins. I haven't had the chance to explore the city that much yet. There's also tons of cathedrals in the city center. So as I record this episode, if you happen to hear bells in the background at any point, know that that really can't be helped. The bells around here just seem to go off all the time. There's no predictable schedule. Yes, there are the bells that go off every hour on the mark, but there's also random bells that go off all sorts of different times. So just... Think of it as the added charms of recording here in this, in a historic center of Europe if you hear the bells, but you may not hear them at all because my microphone tends to pick up only things that are said directly into the microphone. But either way, I wanted to give you a heads up and a warning on that one. And uh, yeah, without further ado, we'll get to the history and get back to the world of ancient Rome. Now, to recap last episode, we left off with Cicero being in exile, with Cato being sent to Cyprus, and with Pompey being deeply in love with his young wife, Julius Caesar's daughter, named Julia. And I had said that at the end of the episode, Clodius in this episode would be setting his sights on Pompey. So that's where we will pick up on this episode. And... Let me just tell you, this episode has been a doozy to try to create the outline for because the timeline has just seemed so jumbled when I read the primary ancient sources. I mean, they all say relatively similar things, but many of them say different orders. Some of the secondary sources say things I can't even find in the primary sources at all. So <laughs> with that being said... The timeline, if at any point it seems a bit jumbled or a bit confusing to you, or if I equivocate on what happened when, that is why it's because the ancient sources are often not clear on what happens when. Now, let's get into the actual episode. Going back to when Clodius exiled Cicero, Appian, one of our primary sources, says about that whole scene that after Clodius won that political battle and exiled Cicero, he began going around Rome and actually comparing himself to none other than Pompey, which is a wild thing because let's just remind you who Pompey is. He is the great war hero. He is the great general of Rome. And at this point in Roman history, he's perhaps the greatest general Rome has ever seen. I mean, there's an argument for other people like Scipio Africanus and in the future, Julius Caesar, but Caesar's not at that level yet. He's having some success in Gaul. He's making a name for himself as a great general, but he's not on Pompey's level yet. So Clodius, just having, what, exiled Cicero, having never fought battles as a general, having never commanded armies, is now comparing himself to Rome's greatest general. It's ridiculous. But Clodius is not one to be shy or timid, and he is one to be self-confident. And he's displaying that self-confidence in spades. 
Now, in doing this, Clodius is not just comparing himself to Pompey. He seems to almost want to replace Pompey because Clodius has a hunch here. He thinks that Pompey is really, you know, he's built up as this grand war hero, as this strong man, as this guy that defeats the enemies of Rome and humbles them. But Clodius has a theory that maybe Pompey was that at one time, but he's not anymore. Or maybe he was never that, and maybe he's just been a paper tiger this whole time. But regardless, Clodius fully believes that Pompey is a full-blown paper tiger at this point. He's a straw man. He's somebody that looks good on paper, but would be easy to push around in, the, in reality. And this is a very tempting theory for Clodius to try to test out. So, of course, you know, having being a guy that doesn't really have a lot of self-control, he goes and tries to test this theory against Pompey. Now, Pompey fought many wars in the east of the Roman Empire. That's against Pontus and Armenia around the region of modern-day Turkey and the modern state of Armenia. And in doing so, he at some point took the captive of, or took captive the son of King Tigranes. And King Tigranes was the king of Armenia, and his son was also named Tigranes. And Pompey took him as a hostage for kind of to make sure that the king would behave good. And this was common in ancient times. We've seen Caesar do this in Gaul a number of times. He'll take hostages from the local Gallic aristocracy, and he'll force them either to go to Rome or he'll keep them with his army. And this is to force the nobles of that tribe to behave well. And Pompey did this too, but he's got princes in his retinue, right? He's got princes to ensure the good behavior of their fathers, and Pompey keeps this young king to grant or young prince to grannies in Rome, in and around Pompey at all times to make sure that he stays there. And he's the guy's not a prisoner. He's not locked up, this young prince to grannies. He's a welcomed guest that is not allowed to leave under any circumstances. And he's probably treated very well and given access to lots of food. And I mean, maybe not what a prince would be used to, but he's treated like a valuable guest among the Romans, just a guest that's not allowed to leave. And this is one of the sources of Pompey's power around the empire is since he's fought wars in Spain, since he's fought wars in the east of the empire, he's fought wars in Africa, he's fought wars on every, or what, the Romans had three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia, and Asia for them was the Middle East. And he's fought wars and, and run triumphs on all three of the continents, or done triumphs for wars fought on all three of the continents, that is. And so Pompey, in fighting these wars has often ended up with client kings and prince hostages and maybe princess hostages. And so he has so many of these client kings around the empire that obey him directly more so than the Senate, you might think. Because, yes, they are technically subservient to the Senate of Rome, but if Pompey is the one that personally has charge of their son, then who do you think they're going to listen to more? So this is a major source of Pompey's power. Well, Clodius knows this. He's crazy Clodius, but he's very clever. And Clodius decides to try to free this Prince Tigranes from Pompey's control just to, one, poke Pompey in the eye, and two, to see what Pompey's going to do about it, see if there's anything Pompey can do about it, test this theory of if Pompey's a paper tiger and somebody who can be pushed around or if he's actually somebody to be feared. 
So Clodius actually does this. He manages to free this Prince Tigranes from Pompey's control. And Tigranes was staying at one of Pompey's friends' house. I don't know why he wasn't staying at Pompey's house, but for whatever reason, he was staying at one of Pompey's friends' house, and that's where he was kept. And Clodius managed to somehow sneak into the house. And I'm guessing with the the willing cooperation of the prince to sneak him away from Pompey's control. At this point, there's two differing accounts. Like I said, the sources differ on a lot of this stuff. Plutarch says that Clodius then kept Tigranes around him at all times as basically part of his entourage. And this was really, I mean, the idea behind this would be to flex on Pompey to not only steal his prince, but to keep the prince around Clodius at all times as a reminder that he stole Pompey's prince. As a reminder to everybody in Rome that, hey, this prince used to belong to Pompey, but now he's mine. You know, it's a very poignant insult. It's, ha, I took your prince, he's mine now, and what can you do about it? And the very fact that people keep seeing this prince around Clodius is a reminder that Pompey hasn't done anything about it. Of course, there's an alternate account. Appian, one of our other ancient sources, says that Clodius simply set Tigranes free and let him go and be on his way. To me, that seems a little bit more likely because why would Tigranes agree to leave Pompey's control just to jump into Clodius's control? It doesn't make any sense to me. Then again, we don't know that Tigranes agreed to any of this. He may have just been along for the ride and had no idea what was happening. But either way, Clodius has stolen Pompey's prince, and this is a very high-value hostage. This is not just some princeling from some unheard-of kingdom. This is a major kingdom on Rome's frontiers. And Clodius has stolen the prince from Pompey and either set him free or keeping him, or is keeping him with his entourage. Either way, Clodius is flexing his muscles on Pompey and waiting to see if Pompey can do anything about it. And Pompey isn't so easily pushed around. He does have a lot of connections and a lot of power and an enormous amount of resources. And you'll remember when Caesar and Bibulus left office, the first triumvirate, that's Caesar, that's Pompey, that's Crassus, packed the consulship of the following year with two of their supporters, one of them being Caesar's father-in-law and the other one being a man named Aulus Gabinius. He's kind of a, a man of Pompey. And actually a friend of Catiline's, or, or an ex-friend of Catiline's, and actually it was Cicero in one of his letters that referred to this consul, Alice Gabinius, as, quote, Catiline's pet dancer, <laughs> which is another great character assassination from Cicero. And, and you can see why Cicero's silver tongue got him into trouble from time to time. You didn't have to do anything bad to Cicero to get him to start character assassinating you. There just had to be the opportunity for a good joke. So Pompey has two consuls on his side, one being the Alice Gabinius, who's really Pompey's creature, and the other one being Caesar's father-in-law. So he goes to Gabinius. We're just going to call him Gabinius and drop the Alice part to make the name a little bit easier. And Gabinius comes with Pompey to go confront Clodius about this bad behavior. And we don't know exactly what they say to Clodius because the sources are not too specific, but I imagine they went there and the consul said, hey, this kind of behavior is unacceptable. It's going to upset the peace that Rome has in the east if you're just setting princes free to go back to their kingdoms because now there's no hold on the king anymore. You know, this kind of stuff can't be happening. And Clodius, so what, what was his response to being talked down to by the consul? And the consul, remember, is like their president in Rome. This is a very distinguished figure. Well, Clodius is having none of this. 
And he first insults both of them, Pompey, who's one of the members of the triumvirate, and Gabinius, who's the current consul. And then he ups the ante even more, and he attacks both of their followers. He even has his followers, his gangs, Clodius, smash Gabinius's fasces to pieces. Remember, the fasces are the bundle of rods that the bodyguards of the consuls carry to symbolize their power. Well, Clodius says, what power? And he has his gang smash those rods to pieces. This is a huge embarrassment for Gabinius. It's a huge embarrassment for Pompey because Pompey brought him into this mess. And historian Adrian Goldsworthy even says that they actually beat up Gabinius too. They beat up the consul, according to Goldsworthy. And we have another primary source on this, Cassius Dio, that even says that Clodius did one of those things which he's done before. He took the property that they stole off the supporters of Gabinius and Pompey that they had beaten up, and they devoted all this property to the gods. I mean, the literal quote is, quote, devoted his property to the gods, end quote. And this is kind of cryptic, because what does that mean? Well, the idea behind devoting the property of the supporters of Pompey and Gabinius to the gods would likely be in my mind so that Pompey and Gabinius and their followers could never get this property back. In other words, if they were to come back to Clodius some future time and demand to have their property given back to them, Clodius would simply say, hey, it doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to Jupiter, belongs to some other Roman god, and therefore it would be sacrilege for you to take that property back. Again, this is very devious by Clodius, and I don't know what property they're referring to. I don't know if they stole gold or coins off these people, or if he's just talking about the broken pieces of the fasces, or if they had other property that Clodius stole. But regardless, it was dedicated to the gods, and this is a move that Clodius has done before. Remember, when he burned down or tore down Cicero's house, he set up a temple to the goddess of liberty on the spot of of Cicero's old house. That way, Cicero could never, even if he did return from exile, get his property back to rebuild his house. Clodius, as always, is a master at rubbing people's noses in his victories and in their defeats and making it clear to them in very irritating ways that he has won and they have lost. And devoting their property to the gods is just one of his many tactics. Now, I want to put this whole story into perspective for you because It's easy when reading ancient history to think, oh, these were different times, people acted in wild ways, then this happened, then that happened, and to lose track of how unprecedented this is. So let's try to make this more relatable for us for a second. Try to picture in your head that in modern-day Washington, D.C., there is a young senator who is actively raising personal street gangs on the streets of D.C., And with these street gangs is breaking up court trials that either go against the senator's interests or try to hold the senator to account for their terrible actions. This senator is using these street gangs to harass prominent members of Congress and not just harass them, but at least one of them, he has burned down their houses and not just their house in D.C., but gone throughout the country and and found whatever other secondary or third house they have and burned those down as well all over the country. They have forced different senators into exile and they are setting high value prisoners free that the United States has. So you have this picture now, this young senator in Washington, D.C., running wild with street gangs, beating up other members of Congress, burning their houses down, setting prisoners free. 
And when the president of the United States goes to speak to this young senator to tell them that their most recent behavior is out of line and cannot continue this way, what does this young senator do? He has his street gangs beat up the Secret Service, possibly beat up the president himself, gives him a black eye, (laughs) and then send the president on his way. Think about the absolute sensation that would cause around the country. And think about how you, as a normal citizen of the United States, even I know many we have many listeners around the world that are not from the U.S., but the U.S. is is one of the largest democracies in the world, and it's where I'm from, so I think it's relatively relatable. People know something about the politics there. So I'm going to continue to use the U.S. as this example. But imagine if you, as a citizen of the U.S., heard about this, how would you feel? You would probably feel like your government is not functioning at all. That whatever problems you have, this government, where one young senator is running wild, just beating up the president and his secret service and burning down the houses of other congressmen, is not going to accomplish anything that you need fixed in your life. And think about how out of control that young senator would have to be to do all these things. Because most of the country is going to hate you for this. And you have to be the type of personality that does not care at all about whether people like you or dislike you. And that person in this story is Clodius. He's doing all these things. He is purely motivated by personal vendettas and gaining personal power. And round one in this battle between him and Pompey has gone clearly to Clodius. But there'll be more rounds to come. So Clodius, after all this incident, after he beats up at least the posse of the consul, if not the consul himself, sits there and he thinks to himself, wow, round one was actually relatively easy. So hypothesis, is Pompey a paper tiger? Conclusion, yeah, he absolutely is, because Pompey couldn't do anything about me taking his prince. So Clodius, like any good fighter, decides to stay on the attack. And he pushes Pompey even further. He begins to attack Pompey's friends in various ways. And the sources don't say. They just say that he attacked Pompey's friends. But I I have to imagine this means politically and also physically. Because we've already seen that Clodius is not afraid to get physical with even the consul. And by physical, I mean to physically beat them up. Now the next thing that happens is... Pompey attends some sort of trial or hearing in Rome, and Clodius hears about this. He hears that Pompey's in the city. Because Pompey, as I understand it, a lot of times lived just outside the city. He had a big mansion outside the city. But he came into the city for this trial. Clodius hears about it, gets together a bunch of his gang members, heads to the trial, and begins harassing Pompey. And here's what Plutarch, one of our ancient sources, says. Quote, At last... Upon a time when Pompey was present at the hearing of a certain cause, Clodius, accompanied with a crowd of profligate and impudent ruffians, standing up in a place above the rest, put questions to the populace as follows. And this is a quote within a quote by Clodius. So Clodius says, quote, Who is the dissolute general? Who is the man that seeks another man? Who scratches his head with one finger? And the rabble upon the signal of his shaking his gown, with a great shout to every question, like singers making responses in a chorus, made answer, Pompey, end quote. So to explain that quote in simple terms, what's happening is, is very childish. 
Basically, Clodius climbs up on some kind of platform above his rabble of, as Plutarch described them, a crowd of profligate and impudent ruffians. I love ancient insults. <laughs> They're just so funny. The next time you, ha- you meet somebody that you don't like, maybe you want to call them a profligate and impudent ruffian and see how they react. Eh, I don't think it'll go so well, but <laughs> it could be funny. Anyway, Clodius climbs up above these guys and he's yelling out to his gang of supporters. He's saying, who is the dissolute general or, or who is the immoral general? I've heard translations to that put it as like, who is the sexually immoral general? And when he says this, he then shakes out his toga and that's a signal for his group of ruffians to yell out, Pompey. And then he says, who is the man that seeks another man? And he shakes his gown again and they yell, Pompey. So now he's calling him homosexual as well. And he says, who scratches his head with one finger? And what does this mean? The Romans were so hyper-masculine that it was seen, or maybe at one point it actually was a thing, that if you had a gay senator or a gay aristocrat, they would signal to each other by scratching their head with one finger that, hey, I'm gay, are you gay too? And if the other guy was gay, they would scratch their head with one finger, and this would be a secret signal so that the whole world wouldn't know that they were gay. Maybe at one point that this was actually a secret signal that gay members of the Senate and upper classes used to communicate with each other, but if it was a secret signal at one point, it's not a secret anymore. It's a well-known thing among the Roman aristocracy, and it's a well-known insult to say that somebody scratched their head with one finger. So that's what Clodius is saying about Pompey there. So all this is extremely childish, these insults that he's throwing at Pompey. But the Romans loved childish humor like this, and they would have found this immensely funny, especially since it's being said about somebody that's highly respected, that usually people would watch what they say around because Pompey's so powerful. And Clodius doesn't care. He's going right in there and, and at least verbally socking Pompey right in the jaw. And everybody's just like, oh, my God, what did he just say? <laughs> and you can imagine the crowd ooing and aahing at this and laughing. Now, author Tom Holland makes the point of this whole scene that, let's remember, Clodius is a man who's been accused of cross-dressing as a flute girl and sneaking into an all-female festival. So... Him having the audacity to accuse Rome's greatest general of effeminacy is just ridiculous. I mean, Clodius knows no shame whatsoever. He is shameless when it comes to hypocrisy, and he seems to just love and revel in hypocrisy. He thinks it's funny. He thinks the more hypocritical and ridiculous the thing that he says is, the funnier, more outlandish it is. And reading from a distance of almost 2,000 years or more than 2,000 years and not having these things said about me, I got to admit, it is kind of funny, these things that Clodius says, just because it's so hypocritical. This is a guy, like I said, that was caught cross-dressing by the whole city and is yelling at somebody else and calling them effeminate. He doesn't even have shame enough to blush about this. Also on the charge of Pompey being dissolute or immoral, this is so hypocritical, it's just mind-blowing. One, because, like I said, Clodius snuck into that all-female festival that was extremely important to the religious areas of Rome. You know, this was extremely religiously immoral in Rome uh, of a thing to do. But what's more than that is let's talk about the group that Clodius surrounds himself with because he has a group of young aristocrats that are kind of the cool set in Rome now, 
and they are almost entirely, all of them, caught up in sex scandals of one or another. First, we have young Mark Antony. This is, yes, the future commander in Caesar's army and, and future, at times at least, right-hand man of Caesar. But right now, he's not that. He's younger. He's not in Gaul with Caesar yet. He's running around Rome. He's accused... Well, he's supposed to be running up huge debts and gambling and drinking all the time. And, and those things are not unusual for a young Roman aristocrat. This was quite common because you'd have all sorts of people willing to offer them money to entangle them in debt. That way, when they did rise up their political career, they would owe things to these debt lenders. Imagine if when you went to college, there were people on campus that would just approach you and say, hey, I'll lend you a million dollars if you want, and you can be driving a Mercedes tomorrow, and you can be buying or renting this luxury apartment and throwing huge parties with your friends. You can imagine there are quite a few people that would say yes to that. And this was the problem the Romans were having with their young aristocratic men was that these debt lenders knew that there was so much opportunities for these guys in the future to make money that they were so happy to lend them tons of money early on on stupid things like gambling and whores and drink to get them entangled up so that in the future they could call on favors. And Mark Anthony was no exception. In fact, he was taking out debt on an even worse scale than most people. And Caesar being the exception, right? But Caesar borrowed tons of money but always seemed to have had a goal in mind to create an image of himself as this glittering, glamorous, rising star. It seems, at least from the readings that I've done on the sources, and I still have to dive deeper into Mark Anthony, but he it seems that Mark Anthony was borrowing more money for whores and wine and gambling than anything else. But anyway, none of that was too out of line for a young Roman male aristocrat. What was crazy to the Romans was that he was accused of having an affair with his friend, a man named Curio, who's also one of the cool set part of uh, Clodius's crew. And I've talked about this affair earlier in the podcast, but it's been a while since we talked about it. So let me just remind you real quick. Mark Antony is accused of having a homosexual affair with his friend Curio, and Mark Antony is known to be a big muscled man, just bulging with muscles, and the Romans would say that he would squeeze these bulging muscles into a dress for Curio's amusement, and you don't know if this is the kind of thing that really happened or whether the Romans just loved a good rumor like this, but the Romans found it very funny to think about this idea of this big soldier, Anthony, squeezing into a dress, and we don't know 100% if there's any truth to this, but we do know that Cicero, well, so Curio's father was also named Curio, and, and he was a well-known person. So people would refer to Curio as Curio's son, but Cicero in one of his letters refers to Curio as Curio's girlish son, or I've seen another translation where he just calls him Curio's little daughter. So Cicero at least believes that Curio is very effeminine and calls him at the very least the senior Curio's girlish son. But Cicero was always prone to gossiping about people, so we shouldn't put too much stock into that. What I put more stock in is that Curio's father actually bans him from seeing Anthony at one point. So whether it was just that this rumor was spreading all over Rome and Curio's father wanted to stop it, or maybe there was some truth to it, I don't know, but Curio's father felt enough about this to try to ban Anthony from seeing his son... And then apparently Curio would still sneak Anthony in through the roof tiles of the house and still let him in. So that sounds a lot like two lovers meeting up, right? 
And by today's standards, in the Western world, we would not think too much of two young men falling in love. But the Romans thought that this was scandalous. And they weren't medieval Europe. They weren't going to put anybody to death for this. But they did think it was funny, and they liked to make fun of Anthony and Curio for this. And those are not the only scandals going on in Clodius' circle. At some point, Anthony either gets bored of Curio as a lover, if not as a real friend, if the relationship was even real, and he decides, I mean, as Tom Holland puts it, to start sniffing around Clodius' wife. And Clodius' wife was a woman named Fulvia. And again, it's extremely ironic that Clodius is seeing Pompey as a target because he's deeply in love with Julia, because Clodius was in love with his wife, Fulvia. And this was seen as such a breach of friendship, the idea that Anthony is now trying to have an affair with his good friend Clodius' wife that he very much loves, that it, it breaks up the friendship. And Tom Holland says that they end up threatening to kill each other at one point, Anthony and Clodius. But Fulvia, for her part, you know, she will eventually be married to all three of these men. <laughs> she starts out married to Clodius, then I think next she marries Curio, and then finally, Anthony. I may have that order wrong, but I think that's the order she marries them in. So apparently she liked this friend group a lot. Now, not all of these scandals have happened yet. I'm just giving you an idea of the friend group that Clodius runs in and how astoundingly hypocritical it is that he would criticize Pompey for being immoral when this is the group that he surrounds himself with. Never mind his sisters. We haven't even gotten into his sisters yet who are probably the worst of this group, and they're also part of this cool set, but we'll talk about them in a future episode. Now, these public insults of Pompey were devastating to Pompey because he was not somebody that was accustomed to being insulted, and I think that, it, at least my reading of, of him and his story is that he's so used to being praised by everybody all the time that he's not used to having to stand up for himself interpersonal conflicts or in political conflicts and when somebody comes right out in the open and starts making fun of him like this he's completely unprepared he's kind of non-confrontational Pompey's brave on the battlefield and there's many stories of him fighting in combat but when it comes to interpersonal skills he doesn't like confrontation after all this is the guy Pompey that promised Cicero he would protect him from Clodius's gangs and when he didn't Cicero came one last time to Pompey's house to try to see him, to try to see if he could convince Pompey to do something, and Pompey, rather than facing him and saying, hey, I'm sorry I let you down, I can't help you, instead sneaks out the back door to avoid <laughs> the confrontation with Cicero. So in, in some levels, Pompey's definitely non-confrontational. And the Senate absolutely loves seeing Pompey get humbled by Clodius like this. They think this is hilarious. Because in so many ways, they feel that Pompey has lorded himself over them over the years. He's skipped all the rungs on the ladder, which they resent. He's now part of the triumvirate, ramming through legislation and basically ruling over Rome. And now he's being humbled by Clodius in the greatest of ways, just cracking jokes about Pompey in public at court trials. And a lot of them felt it was payback for Pompey's betrayal of Cicero. And it's crazy to think that even though Clodius is roaming the streets of Rome with street gangs and beating up consuls, that he still has the Senate basically on his side. And just to remind you, remember, the Temple of Castor and Pollux, which sits right in the Forum, 
Clodius, when he had first became tribune, had taken his gangs up into this temple and they had demolished the steps to make it into a fortress for themselves. So Clodius literally has a fortress for his gangs in the Forum of Rome, and yet the Senate's still not against him. It's crazy to think about. In my mind, the Senate, which is often the case with them in ancient Rome, is happy to take just a poison pill to watch one of their great figures get taken down a peg and get humbled. And that poison pill is Clodius. They're happy to let him run free and go wild in the Republic just to watch Pompey get taken down and humbled. As always, they are far more focused on personal rivalries than on the good of the Republic as a whole. Now, I said that Pompey is very upset about this because he's not used to confrontation. He's not used to being insulted in public like this. And the Senate's reaction to all this just makes it even worse for Pompey. Because now all the powerful people, all the people whose opinions he values, are all laughing at him and joining in on this. And author Tom Holland even says that one of the most ancient laws of the Republic defines the chanting of abuse akin to murder. So chanting abuse of somebody in the forum to the Romans in one of their most ancient laws is not just seen as abusive behavior, it's seen akin to murder. And to take down somebody's reputation like this is the same as trying to kill them. Now, all of this is ironic because from Pompey's point of view, it had been him, Pompey, and his fellow consul, Crassus, that had restored the tribunes to their old powers. Remember, Sola had limited the tribunes' powers and had limited people of ambition from going and taking on that position, but it had been Pompey and Crassus that had restored their powers, and now here there was a tribune coming and attacking Pompey. It seemed like a cruel twist of fate to him. So that's the end of round two. Ding, ding, ding. Round two goes to Clodius again. Now round three begins, June of 58 BCE. Just to give you some context as to where this all relates to Caesar, this is the year that Caesar is fighting the Helvetii, and later that year he will fight the Germans in Ariovistus. So Pompey's been humbled a few times now by Clodius, and he's trying to think to himself, well, how can I get back at this man? How can I reinstate my prestige and power over this republic? And the Romans are intentionally social people, so he's not just doing this alone. He's got friends sitting there brainstorming with him, and his friends come to give him advice. And one friend says that he should maybe divorce Julia, and that way he can abandon Caesar as an ally and make friends with the Senate. The Senate would come over to his side, and they could then fight Clodius together. Now, I don't know who this guy was. They don't say which friend it was, but I just imagine this guy did not read the room at all because, like I said, Pompey is deeply in love with his wife. And imagine going to your friend and they're having problems in their work life and you were like, hmm, maybe you should uh, divorce your wife. Think about how that would go over. <laughs> now, of course, these are different times and, and many of these marriages are seen as political in Rome, but still, Pompey's not having it. Shuts that idea down. But another friend says that maybe Pompey should bring Cicero home because Cicero was a known opponent of Clodius and he's well liked by the Senate and it would add another rival to Clodius into Rome and it would appease the Senate. Pompey likes this idea. He agrees to it. And in our last episode, we left Cicero still in exile. I had said that his wife, his best friend, his son-in-law, and his brother were all working for his recall, but that none of their efforts mattered as much as what actually happens in Rome between Pompey and Clodius. 
oh, now you see this is the reason why Cicero gets recalled because Pompey's having such a hard time like this and he's trying to get, or he's trying to find a way to strike back at Clodius. But of course, Clodius hates Cicero and he's not going to make this easy on Pompey. And in June, Pompey tries to have the Senate vote to recall Cicero, but Clodius is a tribune, which means he gets a veto. And the ancient sources says that Actually, he doesn't do the veto himself, that he has a tribune that's friendly to him. Clodius has a tribune that's friendly to him, veto this vote altogether. And boom, Clodius wins that round. So this is not very creative thinking for Pompey. I don't know why he wouldn't think that Clodius would veto this. He went through all the trouble to try to exile Cicero. Why would he let you just have a vote taken to bring him back? So now we move on to the summer of 58 BCE. And Clodius, for whatever reason, decides to take a break from his fight with Pompey. He's feeling good. Maybe a lot of this power is going to his head. His ego's swelling. His head's getting bigger and bigger because he's humbling Pompey, one of the greatest men in Rome and, and perhaps Rome's greatest general up to this point. And he decides, Clodius, to pick a fight with somebody else. Now, he's already exiled Cicero, so he's out of the way. He's humbled Pompey, so he's not fully done, but Pompey's on the ropes. He sent Cato on a forced working vacation to Cyprus. And uh, now he looks around and he thinks to himself, well, who else is left in this this land that has any power? Well, in the summer of 58 BCE, Clodius looks around and he realizes that Julius Caesar has a lot of power. And maybe it would be good to go after Caesar and see what happens. So what he does is he begins calling Caesar's legislation into question, all that legislation that Caesar passed as consul, that is basically his legacy at this point. And to do this, Clodius calls Bibulus to public meetings to testify against Caesar. And they don't say what Bibulus says, but you can imagine Bibulus saying, you know, at these meetings, well, I saw all these different omens and Caesar ignored me and he wouldn't listen to my omens and these are the kind of things that, that Clodius is doing to try to strike at Caesar now. And this is incredibly stupid because, one, not only is Clodius picking a fight with two out of the three triumvirate members, the three most powerful men in Rome, and two of them he's now picked a fight with, there's also, even if you ignore that, even if you think Clodius has enough power and has enough ability to fight both these guys at once, let's think about what attacking Caesar's legitimacy means, because Caesar's legitimacy as consul is the same as Clodius' legitimacy. What do I mean by that? I mean that it was in Caesar's consulship where Caesar as consul and Pontifex Maximus oversaw the, the adoption of Clodius to a plebeian family, right? So if Caesar's consulship is illegal, and if everything that he did during his consulship is not allowed and has to be repealed, then that means the adoption of Clodius to a plebeian family also is illegal and has to be undone. And if that happens, what does that mean? That means that he can't be a tribune, which he is right now, which means that all the laws that Clodius passed as tribune are no longer legal and have to be repealed. So Clodius is literally sawing the very branch that he sits on. If he proves to Rome that Caesar's consulship is illegitimate and everything that he did needs to be repealed, then that means that everything that Clodius did needs to be repealed as well. So why is he doing this? I don't really have an answer. Nobody really knows. All I can say is Clodius is a mad dog. I've said it before and I'll say it again. And he is incredibly clever, 
but I don't think he has any grand strategy in mind outside of just gaining personal power and pursuing personal vendettas. And who knows, maybe Caesar sent him a strongly worded letter about leaving Pompey alone, and this is why he struck at Caesar? We'll never know, right? But Caesar may, may have done something that made Clodius angry, and he starts striking at Caesar. Or maybe Caesar did nothing at all. We don't know which. But Caesar, for his part, is up to his eyeballs in Gallic bodies. <laughs> no, no exaggeration. And right now, he does nothing to combat Clodius outside of well, nothing that the sources say. Maybe he's, he's mobilizing his proxies to defend him in, the, in these court trials and these hearings. But right now, Caesar kind of just sits tight. Now, round four between Pompey and Clodius begins in August of 58 BCE. And this most recent fight between Clodius and Pompey may have been inspired by Pompey's attempt to recall Cicero. If Clodius attacks Pompey for no reason the first time, just to see if he's a paper tiger, well now by trying to recall Cicero, Pompey's actually done something to anger Clodius, so he's going to raise the stakes. And in a very crowded public area of Rome, Clodius's slave was spotted sneaking through the crowd with a knife drawn towards the area where Pompey was standing. And Rome is an area where weapons are not allowed, so a guy sneaking through the crowd with a knife does not go unnoticed. And he's apprehended. And if there's any doubt as to the fact of whether he was sneaking towards Pompey or maybe he was going to cut his meat or something like that, right? Um, if there's any doubt, Goldsworthy says that the slave admits under interrogation that he was sent by Clodius to kill Pompey. So now it seems that there's, there's no social taboo that Clodius won't step over. Assassination is not too far for Clodius. Like the late great Charlie Murphy once said of Rick James, Clodius is a habitual line stepper. He habitually steps over any line you can draw in the sand. Now to put this assassination attempt, or we'll get into it, but we don't know whether it was a real attempt or not. But to put it into context, Pompey was a very brave man on the battlefield. But for whatever reason, he had a phobia and was terrified of assassinations for most of his life. And when this is discovered that this guy was sneaking up on him with a knife, Pompey gets scared. And Pompey actually goes home to his house for the rest of the year that Clodius is tribune. And he never leaves his house, or if he does, he only goes very close to his house, and he definitely never goes into the forum again for the rest of the year that Clodius is tribune. So the question is, was this a real assassination attempt where Clodius decided, hey, if this guy's going to try to recall Cicero, I'll just kill him and get him out of the way. To me, that seems bold even for Clodius. The alternative could be that maybe Clodius was aware of this morbid fear of assassination that Pompey had. And maybe the idea was never to kill Pompey, just to scare the living daylights out of him so that Pompey would run away. And if that's the case, if that was the goal, then it worked brilliantly. And just like Clodius found a way to get rid of Cato and send him to Cyprus and exile Cicero, he has now found a way to get Pompey out of his hair as well. This guy, I mean, he may be crazy in some ways, but he's brilliant in other ways. But what I want to know is, how is it possible that Clodius's slave was spotted and admits to having orders from Clodius to try to kill Pompey, and yet Clodius isn't prosecuted for this. 
Is it because if they created a trial, Clodius would run in there with his gangs and break up the court trial? That's definitely possible. But if that's the case, that really shows how much power he has in Rome at this point. My other question in this story is always, what happens to this poor slave? Because think, if your master is Clodius, you're, you're already unlucky. I mean, what, what is this guy got you doing? This guy is crazy. He's unpredictable, and he orders you, hey, see that most eminent man in Rome over there, Pompey? I want you to take this knife and go kill him. But what do you do if you're the slave? Because if you say no, I mean, a Roman master can have you tortured, and potentially tortured to death. So, and I'm not, I'm pretty sure that's not below Clodius to do that. But if you sneak up on Pompey with a knife and you kill him, well, what do you think the Roman Senate's going to do to you? They're going to torture you to death. They're probably going to crucify you. So maybe the slave intentionally made his sneak up to Pompey very obvious so that he would be caught and could just rat Clodius out. But I don't know whatever happened to this poor slave. I don't know if he was crucified or if he was let go or if they said, hey, this is... Clodius' fault, not the slaves' fault. I don't know. It's not like the Romans to not punish slaves for things like this. So I always feel for that poor guy. And now there are secondary sources that say that when Pompey hid out in his house that Clodius and his gangs pursue Pompey and actually blockade him into his house. I don't know where they get this from because try as I might, I could not find a single primary source that confirmed this. But just know that some secondary sources do say this, and maybe they get this from Cicero's letters or, or somewhere else that I could not find. So we look at Rome now, and we can clearly see that the Senate has fully lost control of Rome. And there are many books that you'll read that say that the Triumvirate ruled Rome secretly and that they controlled everything that went on. But clearly that's not the case. If Clodius is running wild like this, if he's attacking two out of three members of the Triumvirate, and there's rumors all throughout Rome that, that Crassus is the one who's funding and backing Clodius on all this, then I don't think we can really accurately say that the Triumvirate rules Rome if Clodius has this much power. So round four goes again to Clodius. Pompey has not won a round yet. But he's not fighting very creatively, Pompey. In fact, he's not fighting much at all. He's, he's doing very simple things. Clodius is, is, is thinking outside the box, and it's working. So now Pompey is hiding in his house, and he's got lots of time to think and to plan on how to strike back at Clodius. And he's determined to do so, and, and really he doesn't have much of a choice, right? Because Clodius is not going to let off of him. Clodius is going to keep on pursuing him. So Pompey, after a lot of brainstorming, decides to dig in and try harder and be a little bit more creative. So for one, he moves to get Caesar's support in recalling Cicero. He writes letters to Caesar asking him to support this, and Caesar, for his part, is hesitant at first. He doesn't want to support this. They already did all the work to send Cicero into exile. I'm guessing he thinks Cicero's silver tongue can't be trusted to stay quiet. <laughs> But uh, Pompey keeps insisting, and he eventually sends a friend of Cicero's to Gaul to meet with Caesar in person and convince Caesar to go along with this. So eventually, Caesar relents, and he's convinced. And Caesar wants Cicero to be under obligation to him, the triumvirate. And historian Adrian Goldsworthy actually makes the point and speculates that maybe Caesar's hesitation was just to drive the point home to Cicero that, hey... If you're coming back, this is not some easy thing where I say, oh, sure, come on back, Cicero. I'm hesitant. I wasn't sure about this. And so when you come back, you're going to owe me, you're going to owe Pompey, you're going to owe the triumvirate things. And it's not, you're not going to be free and clear when you come back. 
And Quintus, Cicero's brother, even offers a guarantee to Pompey that Cicero would not attack the first triumvirate. So now they have the power of Caesar on their side, and that's important because Caesar urges all of his extensive clients to support the recall as well. So Caesar, as I've said many times in the past, but I'll say it again because this podcast is on Caesar, even while fighting wars in Gaul and running three provinces and supporting and training an army, Caesar still makes time for Roman politics. This man has endless and relentless energy. Now, sometime around this time, the Senate finally comes around onto Pompey's side, and the Senate decides that they like Cicero enough to work with Pompey and and to stop watching Pompey get humiliated like this. So Plutarch says that the Senate then votes that no public measures should be ratified or passed by the Senate until Cicero is recalled. This is huge, and this is not good for Clodius. Because the entire Senate has lined up against him and has lined up on Cicero's side. And with the entire Senate and Caesar and Pompey lined up against you, it's hard to imagine anyone standing their ground and saying, I'm not backing down, with the exception of Clodius, because that's exactly what Clodius does. He doesn't back down. In fact, rather than backing down, he ratchets up the tension even more. So December of 58 BCE comes around and Clodius steps down as tribune, not because he gives up, but because his term of office is over. And this almost surprises me because it had been in generations past the Gracchi brothers that had tried to run for multiple tribuneships, which was technically illegal, and the Senate had risen up and, and for this reason, for other reasons as well, killed them. So what I want to know is Clodius is so bold in everything he does, I'm surprised he didn't run for a second tribuneship. But also, where was the Senate that rose up and killed the Gracchi brothers, who weren't anywhere near as extreme or bad for the Republic as Clodius is? I don't know if this is just a different Senate, or if Clodius was just more clever, more conniving in getting rid of the leaders of the Senate, meaning Cicero, Cato, Caesar's gone fighting warfare, that's not what Clodius is doing, but, you know, and, and neutering Pompey as well, I don't know, but it just always strikes me that this ruthless Senate that illegally killed the Gracchi brothers for doing things that the Senate didn't like raises no hand against Clodius whatsoever. But anyway, Clodius in stepping down from the tribuneship does lose some power. But to him, it's it's not the end of the world because he still has these street gangs with him, which he carries with him at all times. And these street gangs seem to have been generally just running amok in the city. Like I said, they have a fortress in the Forum that used to be a temple. It's not anymore. Nobody's praying there because <laughs> Clodius's gangs have demolished the steps. And presumably, they have to throw down some kind of ladder or rope for people to climb up onto the Forum. They are breaking up court trials. They are harassing everyone who walks past the Forum as or who is known to be an enemy of Clodius. They are harassing these people. They are attacking consuls and their entourages. They are chasing Pompey into his house and not letting him leave his house. And in reading the ancient sources, I get the feeling in in the picture that they're doing a lot more things in Rome that are not being written about. Just mugging people in the streets, attacking people, intimidating people. There's a lot going on, a lot of rioting and such. And it's at this point, when the new tribunes are elected, that Pompey decides to fight fire with fire. You see, the upper classes and possibly even some of the poor had just had enough of Clodius at this point. Actually, I think at this point, a lot of the poorer citizens are still on Clodius' side. After all, he's giving them free grain. 
that tends to put people on your side when you feed them. But a lot of the upper and middle class are starting to have enough of Clodius and his antics. And so among the new batch of tribunes that come into office is a man who is a conservative tribune named Titus Annius Milo. We'll simply call him Milo. And Milo is a rough and tough guy. Like I said, he's conservative, but he's also rich and he's popular with the people. And he's the type of man that who not only wouldn't back down from Clodius's bullying, but he was also willing and able to meet Clodius's violence with violence and even greater violence if needed. And there's another tribune that joins Milo in this. His name is Publius Cestius, but he's not as important to the story, so we're not going to focus on him as much. Milo is the name to remember. So Pompey forms an alliance with this new tribune, Milo. And really, I mean, it's not an alliance of equals, right? It's more like Milo is now Pompey's creature and does Pompey's bidding. And he gives Milo his full backing to take on Clodius. And that comes with considerable resources that Pompey has and considerable authority. And I have to think that Milo probably wouldn't have been so bold to do the things that he ends up doing if it wasn't for Pompey's backing. Milo is almost like the tool that Pompey is going to use to fight Clodius while at the same time keeping Pompey's hands clean. So what Milo does is he begins raising his own gangs to fight Clodius' gangs in the streets. Except Clodius' gangs are mostly made up of urban poor who were disaffected and were part of the crossroads colleges and were maybe part of like ancient mafias. So tough and rough guys that are dangerous but not trained per se, right? Well, Milo decides to up the ante. He has some people probably like this that are disaffected, poor citizens, and he also has some people that are like-minded aristocrats, but the real dangerous element of Milo's gang are gladiators. Milo recruits gladiators. These are men who are trained to fight and to kill. These are ruthless men with extreme skill and extreme strength that spend their entire day just training to fight people. He also has with him hardened veterans from Pompey's estates. See, Pompey has big estates in an area called Picenum or Picenum, and many of his veterans come from this area and are settled in this area, and they're settled around Italy as well. So Pompey begins calling these veterans to him and telling them to come to Rome to join in Milo's cause and fight with Milo. So Milo is now upping the ante on Clodius because Milo has people that are trained warriors now going to be fighting in the streets of Rome. So now January of 57 BCE rolls around and round five between Clodius and Pompey begins. Remember, Clodius is out of office now. He's not a tribune, so he can't directly veto laws. And so I guess Pompey has the idea that, hey, if Clodius is not a tribune, now's the time to take another vote on the law to recall Cicero. But let's remember that Clodius has been recruiting and commanding gangs for over a year now. This is something that takes time, right? And it takes time for Milo to recruit these people that he's recruiting because Milo, yes, he's recruiting gladiators and veteran soldiers, but it doesn't happen overnight, right? It takes time to gather all these people and get them into a cohesive unit, get them used to fighting together and organized. But Pompey and the Senate decide to press forward anyway, even before Milo is really fully up and running. 
And at a meeting of the Senate in January of 57 BCE, the consul Cornelius Lentulus Spinther, or simply called Lentulus, and when you see names like that, Lentulus, that literally means lentil. <laughs> a lot of the Roman names are very like, earthy names. Like Cicero, I think, means chickpea. But that's just a side note. So Lentulus puts forward a bill in the Senate meeting to recall Cicero and author and historian Anthony Everett says that it was actually passed by a good majority of the Senate. So, wow, this law to recall Cicero is actually passed. It seems to be working. It's going well. So remember, the Senate passes a law, but that's kind of like the rubber stamp. And then they have to go to the People's Assembly that then officially passes the law. And when they pass it, it becomes actual law. Well, Pompey goes to the forum with Quintus, that's Cicero's brother, to support the bill, to show that, like, hey, this is something that's good for Cicero. His brother's here supporting it. I, Pompey, am here supporting it. You, the people, should vote for it. Now, if you're wondering, why is Clodius quietly sitting there during all this? Why isn't he lifting a finger to stop any of this? This does not sound like the Clodius that you know. I'll tell you why. It's because Clodius isn't there. They have held this meeting of the Senate while Clodius was at a relative's funeral. They have literally tried to sneak the vote to recall Cicero while Clodius is at a relative's funeral. I love Roman politics. They're very theatrical. But Clodius inevitably hears about the vote. He's too late to stop the Senate vote, but he does hear about the vote of the people happening when he's still at his funeral. Now, it's common for Roman aristocrats to have gladiators at funerals. In fact, this was the original purpose of gladiators. It was done by the Etruscans. They would have funeral games where gladiators would fight to commemorate the dead. So as an old-time aristocratic family, Clodius has these gladiators fighting at his relative's funeral. So let's think about this. Clodius is sitting there with a group of gladiators, and he finds out that they're trying to pass a vote in the People's Assembly in the Forum to recall Cicero. What is it you think goes through Clodius's mind? If you think that Clodius would take those gladiators and rush to where the people are voting and cause chaos, you are absolutely right. And Clodius takes these gladiators and actually attacks this meeting of the people. And fighting breaks out. Now, the ancient sources don't directly say, but it seems to me if there was actual fighting and not just people being butchered, it's probably because Milo had some of his gang members there to guard the meeting. And a full-blown gang war erupts in the forum, in the political heart of Rome. They are fighting each other left and right. It is chaos. In a city where weapons are illegal, people are being cut down left, right, and center. Many people are wounded, several are killed, and among the wounded are multiple tribunes. Tribunes are people that are supposed to be sacrosanct, meaning that they're so valuable and so sacred to the people of Rome that you can't touch one aggressively, you can't punch one, never mind wound them like this in a, in a battle in the heart of Rome. This is absolutely scandalous to the people. And Cicero's brother Quintus finds himself in the thick of the fighting. And Quintus will actually be one of Caesar's t lieutenants later on in the war, so keep that name in mind. But Quintus finds himself in the thick of the fighting and barely escapes with his life. In fact, Clodius's gladiators only left him where he was because he was laying on the ground beneath corpses. 
and they assumed he was dead, so they just left him for dead there. And if he wasn't laying unconscious underneath corpses, or at least pretending to be, I don't know which, then they would have killed him right there on the spot. And from Quintus's perspective, I don't know if he got knocked out and fell down, and then some people got killed and fell on top of him, or if he decided, I don't want any of this fight, these guys are gladiators, I'm not going to beat them in a fight, I don't even have a weapon, and if he just laid down on the ground and, and covered himself with a body, I'm not sure which. But Quintus barely survives and gets out of there. Now, all of this is just jaw-dropping to the Romans. Street gangs are truly ruling the city. I mean, it's been this way for a while, but there's always people who are in denial about these sort of things. And now nobody can deny this. People are murdered at a lawful vote of the People's Assembly. Tribunes are wounded. And all of this happens over a personal vendetta because Clodius does not like Cicero and doesn't want him to be recalled from exile. And because of this, many in Rome, even the urban poor, have had enough. But despite all of this, this strategy of attacking the meeting like this works for Clodius, at least in the short term. Because Pompey is not able to pass the bill, the vote in the People's Assembly is not able to be complete, and Cicero is still in exile. Clodius has shown all of Rome, again, that violence can rule Rome if you are bold enough, and if you are unscrupulous enough, and if you're willing to kill people. Violence rules the day. This is a dangerous lesson to introduce into the Roman Republic. And Clodius was not the first one to do this, but he has taken it to a new level. And that is where we will end this episode. It's gone far longer than we've had an episode go in quite a while, so I apologize if you don't like the longer episodes, but we had a lot to talk about today. And in next episode, just to give you a sneak peek, Milo begins to raise his forces in earnest and strikes back at Clodius. He strikes back via gang warfare in the streets. He strikes back and attacks Clodius in the courts, or at least tries to take him to court. And Clodius, for his part, doesn't back down, and Rome turns into pure gang warfare chaos. And Pompey deploys his considerable resources towards Cicero and Milo's cause to try to support them. So that is where we will pick up next time on the March of History. And don't forget to check out the March of History's new Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash themarchofhistory. I've also placed a link to the Patreon account on the summary of every single episode for the March of History. Now, like I said in the intro, I have put together now, this is episode number 40, so the 40th episode for you guys with no ads, no commercials, no payment, and I've actually put a lot of my own money into this, never mind countless hours of my own time. And it's been a labor of love, and I absolutely have enjoyed researching all this history for you and sharing it with you every single episode but I can't do it long term if it's not going to pay the bills. So please help to make this a reality and, and make this potential career a reality and contribute to the March of History, especially if you've enjoyed the past 39 episodes and this episode 40. So definitely check out the Patreon. And like I said, it would mean the world if you would contribute whatever you can afford each month. Now, moving on to our social medias, as always, our Instagram is at the March of History. If you haven't followed it yet, I don't know what you've been listening to, but I make this announcement at the end of every episode. Follow the March of History's Instagram. It's at the March of History. It is quality history and travel content. 
It's a way for you to see who I am as a person and to learn some more history about the European history that I'm over here seeing in Spain and Portugal and and in the future I'll go to Italy and, and all sorts of places. So definitely give it a follow. The Twitter is at March underscore history. Our Facebook, you can just search the March of History and look for the March of History's logo that you see on the podcast store. Our email, if you want to send us any feedback or just communicate with us if you don't have social media, is the March of History at gmail.com. And please, please, please don't forget, if you listen on an Apple device, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. Five stars, the little blurb about what you like about the podcast helps the podcast to grow so much because people who just stumble across it see that and they read through the reviews to see if it's any good and they look at the stars to see if it's any good. And if they don't like what they see, they move on to the next one. So please, if you enjoy the podcast, if you do nothing else today, please do that and and help us out. Uh, And don't forget to share the podcast with others that enjoy history. If you know of other history buffs and friends and family that are into history, Definitely share this podcast with them and don't forget to hit the subscribe button so that you get notifications on future episodes. That is it for episode 40 and I will talk to you again in episode 41 of the March of History. 